0: Well, good morning, everyone. It is my honor and privilege to invite you to point your Bible or your Bible app to the Gospel of John, chapter 11. We will pick up where we left off last Sunday, John chapter 11, beginning at verse 45. Uh, To bring you up to speed, very quickly, a man named Lazarus got sick and died, and Jesus went to his tomb four days after his death and raised him to new life, And this is where we pick up this narrative in John chapter 11, beginning at verse 45. I will read all the way down to chapter 12, verse, uh, what is it, verse 11. And then I'll pray, um, ask for God's help to explain the passage. uh, And then we'll pray again at the end, wrap up, head home to eat bad food and watch football. John chapter 11, verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we going to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come And take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it's better for you that one man should die for the people than that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim. And there he stayed with his disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, they should let them know, so they might arrest him. Chapter 12. Six days before Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus is one of those reclining with him at table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why? When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priest made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Would you pray with me? Lord and Father, I ask that you would now come with your Holy Spirit and open our eyes and open our ears, enabling us to understand what we have just read and its meaning to us. Speak to us now. Give us the fellowship with the Holy Spirit. Bear, bring forth the fruit in our lives that will bring glory To your son, in Jesus' name, amen. The U.S. patent for the fire hydrant has been lost. It was burned in a fire. In 1986, 12 jurors from Orlando, Florida, were on their way to hear a lawsuit against the questionable safety of an elevator company, but were late in getting to court As they got stuck in an elevator. An early advocate of eating organic, J.I. Rodale, boasted of his own health on a talk show. Saying, I've decided I'm going to live to be a hundred years old. And had a heart attack on air. For many years, the Catholic Pope released doves into St. Peter's Square as a sign of world peace. Peace. The practice was stopped a few years ago after one dove, immediately upon its release, was savagely attacked by a pigeon and a crow. Some of you may remember McGruff, the crime dog, in his public service announcement to take a bite out of crime. The actor who played McGruff is currently serving a 16-year sentence after a drug-sniffing dog led to his arrest for trafficking and illegal firearms. Merriam-Webster defines irony as incongruity between an actual result, in the sequence of events, and the normal expected result. In literature, we call it, it is defined as incongruity between the situation developed in the drama and the accompanying words and actions that are understood by the audience, but not by the actors. There are plenty of that kind of irony in our passage this morning. This passage comes on the heels of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. As I said, he had been dead four days and Jesus raised him to new life. This caused, as you might imagine, quite a stir among the Jews. And many people came to Jesus and believed in Jesus because he had raised Lazarus from the dead. Yet it is this being raised to life which actually put Lazarus' life in danger. And while many common Jews are coming to Jesus and believing in him, the religious leaders are plotting to kill him there's dramatic irony in the high priest plans to kill jesus in order to save his people because it's actually jesus death that god uses to actually save his people god uses the deep hatred of jesus enemies to show his deep love for his people Of course, the greatest irony of all is that Jesus Christ, the only sinless one, is condemned to death, while those who actually deserve to be condemned walk free. The one who deserves life dies, and those who deserve death live. There are many ironies throughout, so look for them as we work our way through this passage. Again, Those of you who have been to church for some amount of time, you're certainly familiar with the passage that we read in chapter 12. Mary, the sister of Lazarus, anointing the feet of Jesus with expensive ointment and wiping his feet with her hair. It's one of the most extravagant acts of love and worship of Jesus in the Bible. It is a beloved story and rightfully told everywhere. But I wonder if you've noticed the two little passages that surround it. Hate. And fear-fueled plots to murder. Why would this person and his ministry cause one person to sell everything and to follow him, one person to bow down in worship of him, while this, this same person, his same ministry would cause others to plot his death? Why do we have two very different responses to the Lord Jesus in this passage? Charles Spurgeon offers his observation The same sun which melts wax hardens clay and the same gospel which melts some persons to repentance hardens others in their sins and this is exactly what we see in the passage before us this morning let's have a look verse 45 chapter 11 verse 45 Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and seen what he did, believed in him. Some of them went to the Pharisees, told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council, these religious elite. They gathered together. They said, what are we going to do with this man? He's performing all of these signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone's going to believe in him. Rome's going to notice. Rome's going to come in, and they're going to take away our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest at year, so the leader of them all, he says... You guys don't know anything. You don't understand. It's better for you that one person should die than all the people die. And then John interjects here in verse 51, and he says, he didn't say this because of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, but not for the nation only. To gather into one, the children of God were scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put Jesus to death. And so then Jesus doesn't walk among the Jews, and he goes and he finds a, a quiet place in Ephraim. It's the Passover, it's the spring of the year, and all the people are gathering in Jerusalem, and they're all wondering, is he going to come into town or is he not? The chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, they need to let him know so that they can arrest him. So what we see at the beginning here is that many of the common Jews came to believe in Jesus because of what he did for Lazarus. But some of them reported the miracle to the religious leaders, the Pharisees, chief priests. And they gather a council together. That council is probably the Sanhedrin. Sanhedrin was um, a group of like 70, maybe 71 aristocratic religious leaders. It was sort of like a Supreme Court that made decisions for the Jewish people, except that th- that kind of a court made decisions, not just in religious matters, but also in civil matters. It was a very powerful council. And they convened to discuss this matter about Jesus, this purported miracle worker from Nazareth. In verse 47, they say, what do we do? Because he's performing many signs, which is an interesting admission, if you, don't, if you think about it, for enemies of Jesus to admit that he's Is there some validity to this work that he's doing? And listen to their concern. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come, and they will take away both our place and our nation. If we let him go on like this, then everyone will believe. These religious leaders, they had been entrusted to lead God's people to God, and here comes a man into their nation who purported to be from God, who purported to be God himself, of these should have investigated, found to be true by his signs and by his works, and then rejoiced that they had found the Messiah of God, who had been prophesied by Scripture. They should have. That's what they should have been doing, but they weren't. They opposed Jesus, and they tell us the reason. They oppose Jesus because they're afraid the Romans will come and take away their place and their nation. If we don't use our power to put an end to Jesus, the Romans will use their power to put an end to us. Our place and our nation probably refers to the power and privilege and religious freedom that had been afforded to them by the Roman officials The Roman authorities had given the Jewish people some freedom for self-rule and the council's concern that they would lose their place in their nation. I think it is worth some careful reflection on our part because like them, we enjoy a great level of self-rule and freedom of religion. And I just think we should ask, what about our appreciation Even our love of place and nation might cause us to view the message of the gospel as a threat. Perhaps it's wise to give that some careful thought. As the council is discussing this, their leader, a man named Caiaphas, he interjects in verse 49. You know nothing at all, which is first century language for you guys are idiots, Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people than that the whole nation should perish. You guys are idiots. All we got to do is kill him. Caiaphas is not likely winning any leadership awards with that speech. And so then the gospel writer John steps into the narrative to give us some clarity in verse 51. He says that Caiaphas didn't say this of his own accord. Being high priest that year, he prophesied. He prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, but not just for the nation, but for all of God's people. Caiaphas prophesied. Where does prophecy come from? He did not say this on his own accord. Well, on whose accord did he say it? God's. God's accord. John's letting us know that God is in sovereign control of all the events that surround the life and death of his son. And that is a heavy statement, I understand. Well, let it settle and we'll come back to it. The council agrees with their leader in verse 53, and they begin at that day to make plans to kill Jesus. They are convinced in their hatred of this man that they will do anything to stop him, even murder. Friends, even murder, but not just murder him. Skip down to chapter 12, verse 9. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, this is in Bethany, they came because they wanted to see Lazarus. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The enemies of Jesus' hatred of him was so deep, the fear of losing their place and nation was so strong that they would conspire even to kill Lazarus, a man who had done them no wrong. But he was a sign of the truth of Jesus' claims. Something that they just could not tolerate. Cornerstone, we mustn't forget that the clearer our message, the brighter our sign as it points to Jesus, the more the enemies of Jesus will hate us. Jesus promised, Mark 13, verse 13, everyone will hate you because of me. That's a promise. We just sang about standing on the promises of God. I wonder if any of us were thinking, yeah, I'll stand on that promise so that everyone will hate me because of Christ's name. But nevertheless, it is a promise for those of us who, like Lazarus, are signs that we have been raised to new life. With all of these death threats swirling around Jesus, he no longer walks openly among the Jews, not because he is afraid of them, but because his fate won't be decided by any supreme court of any man. It will be decided by the Lord God himself, his father. And so he goes to the town of Ephraim with his disciples. John tells us it's the spring of the year. Passover is on. It's a feast of the Jews where all the Jewish people would gather in Jerusalem The city is full of people. It's electric with anticipation. Jesus has a death warrant, and they're all wondering, will Jesus come to the feast? And this council is foaming in their hatred. Everyone's in the city waiting for Jesus, looking around, trying to see whether he'll come to the city or not. And as a masterful writer, perfectly wielding irony, John chapter 12 opens with Jesus in Bethany at a small party, at a quiet meal. A murderous plot is contrasted with Mary's perfume. The council fear, council's fear is contrasted with the peaceful meal. The bitty, busy city is contrasted with this little party. The hatred of Jesus' enemies is contrasted with love from Jesus' devotee. The Jewish high priest is planning to kill while the great high priest was planning to die. John chapter 12. Six days before Passover, Jesus, therefore, came to Bethany. Lazarus was there. And they gave a dinner for him. Martha is serving. God bless Martha. We love the Marthas. You just applauded the Marthas in this church. And Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. In those days, dinner wasn't eaten on tables and chairs like we eat They reclined on mats and the table was much lower to the ground. Jesus' feet would have extended away from the table. So just get this scene in your mind. Imagine it's a dinner like any dinner you've been to. Everyone has been served. Martha saw to it that everyone got enough food. And everyone's bellies are full. And undoubtedly they're all in that post-dinner haze. Conversations were bouncing from one topic to the next. I imagine there were laughter and jesting among the disciples. It's joy. It's dinner with Jesus. This is, it's always like this at dinner with Jesus. Now, suppose Mary gets up without a word. She goes into another room and comes back with an expensive jar of ointment. And she sits down at Jesus' feet away from the table. And all the conversations are immediately arrested as they catch the fragrance of the perfume filling the room. And in silence, they watch this woman lavish her love on her Savior. Instead of spreading a little oil, she spends the whole jar. She breaks cultural taboos. In the presence of men, she unlocks her long, dark hair and wipes his feet. And the whole room is full of the fragrance. I imagine every time the apostle retold this story, his olfactory senses immediately remembered that scene vividly. This was, an act, this was a lavish act of great generosity. And Judas is provoked And he breaks the silence. Verse 4, verse 5. Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? If he's not exaggerating, that tells us just how lavish this offering was. A denarius was one day's wage in those days. So 300 denarii would have been an entire year's salary for a worker. And Judas sees this and is indignant. And John tells us why. Judas didn't care about the poor. He didn't really want 300 denarii set aside for poor people in Jerusalem. Judas was a thief. He was the treasurer, and he used to help himself to the money bag. Lavish forms of generosity have a way of exposing latent forms of greed. Greed is one of those sins which is easy to spot in others, which we almost never see in ourselves. I've counseled for many years. As of yet, I've never had a person come to me and say, Pastor, please pray for me. I'm pretty sure I'm spending too much money on myself. Yet the reality is that Jesus spoke spoke more of greed than he ever did of sexual sin. But yet almost no one admits they're greedy. Why do you suppose that is? Probably because we gauge the modesty of our means against those who are above us on the economic scale rather than those who are below us on the economic scale. We look at them and we justify our lifestyle by saying, well, I don't have that kind of car, or I don't have that big of house, or I don't spend that much money here, or whatever metric you like to use. But in reality, we only see how well we're doing, really, when we look though at those below us economically, don't we? It's only when we see those below us, those without as much as us, that we realize how much we have because we're just naturally kind of geared to take things for granted. I think of this every time I hear my children open the fridge and whine about not having anything to drink. You're literally standing two feet away from a virtually unlimited supply of clean water. There's a a billion people on this planet that have no access to clean water, and we complain because, what, city water tastes funny? Or it's not cold enough? (laughs) We just forget how blessed we are. And Judas' greed is exposed by Mary's generosity. On the surface, it seems his objection is righteous, Why spend so much money on so little? Do you know how many poor people could be taken care of with 300 denarii? What a waste. Friends, nothing spent on Jesus is ever wasted. Besides, you know, you, you can read the story. This is not about justice for the poor. Judas cared about his access to the money bag and his greed would eventually get the best of him because in a couple of days after this story in john chapter 12 jesus would be turned in by judas to his enemies for 30 pieces of silver by the way by the way is anyone else intrigued that jesus would have a thief be his treasurer What does that tell you about the way Jesus views money? He's either clueless or he's careless or he's in total control. Anyway, Jesus rebukes Judas, his greedy betrayer. In verse 7, he says, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. We can't know what Mary knew about what she was doing. Jesus certainly knew she was doing this for his burial. I don't know if Mary knew that or not. Perhaps like Caiaphas, she was signaling more than she knew. Whatever the case, Mary's ointment spent on Jesus is lavish. But listen, it is not wasted. Her ointment is not wasted on Jesus. The only ointment wasted on Jesus' account was the ointment the ladies brought to the tomb on Sunday and found it empty. This was for his burial. Jesus explains for the poor, you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. Of course, you understand Jesus is not forbidding taking care of the poor. This is not a matter of competing loyalties. Jesus is saying, you have plenty of time after I'm ascended into heaven to spend yourself on the poor, but you have a limited amount of time to spend yourself on me. So what do we make of this section of John's gospel? Why would the gospel writer, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, bracket this beautiful act of selfless love between two descriptions of selfish hate? What does Mary see in Jesus that Judas doesn't? Why do the crowds believe in Jesus and the religious leaders want him dead? I want you to think about Judas for just a moment. His love of money kept him from loving Jesus. And he tried to conceal his greed under care for the poor. But he turned Jesus in for a sack full of money and betrayed his Lord with a kiss. Greed had hardened his heart. And when Christ was honored, his heart was revealed. The same glory which melted Mary's heart into worship had hardened Judas' heart into betrayal. Think for a moment of the religious leaders. Their love of power and prestige kept them from loving Jesus. Caiaphas tried to conceal his greed under the care of his people, but he plotted to kill Jesus to protect his nation and place. Greed had hardened his heart and kept him from loving Jesus and motivated him to murder The same glory which melted the heart of the people into belief hardened the heart of the religious leaders into conspiring to murder. I wonder what greed is latent in our heart. What is our response when we see Christ being honored in a lavish way? What greed is keeping us from turning away from our sins and turning to Christ in repentance? What is the thing that we cling to and hold to and refuse to release in order to grab hold of Christ? Is it pride? Refusing to admit that you don't really have it all together and are in need of a Savior. Perhaps it's the greed of a hobby that would keep you from spending time discipling another Christian. Perhaps you're greedy for respect to keep you from serving your spouse or anyone else. Or maybe you're here and many of you are like Mary. You've seen the glory of Jesus and your heart like hers has been melted before the Lord and you found him to be full of delight, inexpressible joy. And serving him has been the greatest privilege of your life. Many of you spend hours attending church services, in discipleship groups, praying with one another, praying for one another. Why would you do this? Why would, you, why would one person care at all about another person's spiritual well-being? Why would you care enough to reach out and press beyond surface conversations and ask someone how they're really doing? Why would you care enough about another person to invite them over to dinner and ask them how you can be praying for them? Why would another person's spiritual maturity matter at all? What have you seen in Jesus that the world hasn't seen? What have you seen in being a member of Jesus' church that non-members haven't seen? I can't answer for all of you, but I think I can answer for most of you. You know it should have been you on that cross. You you were the one who deserved to be condemned. You were the one who deserved to go to hell. But Jesus died instead. Mary was honored to have Jesus come into your home, like many of you have been honored to have Jesus come to your life. Now, I don't know how Mary felt in pouring out her expensive ointment on the feet of Jesus, but I suspect... She felt nothing. Because this is what it feels like to be enthralled with Jesus. To spend all the riches of the world on him feels like nothing at all. Compared to what he has done, a year's wages is nothing. No amount of sacrifice comprise, compares to the price that Jesus paid to save hell deserving sinners like you and me. Friends, the gospel of Jesus Christ asks much more of you than you think. Much more. Yet when you give it, it feels like so little because the gospel gives you far more than you can imagine. Jesus nailed to the cross while hell-deserving sinners go free. And when Jesus was risen from the grave, those who are his were risen to new life with him. This is why we sing often, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left its crimson stain, but I've been washed white as snow. The great irony in this passage is that he who knew no sin became sin, so that the unrighteous would become righteous. that God would bind His own Son on the altar of sacrifice in order that those who deserve to be bound would go free. That's the beauty of the irony in this passage. And oh, how expensive is that irony. To the afflicted, Jesus is your comfort. And to those who are comfortable... Jesus is your affliction. Cornerstone, let Mary's lavish worship expose the latent forms of greed in our hearts. Lay your heart before this passage and ask God's Holy Spirit through His Word to reveal what is like Judas in here. Where is that objection to lavish worship, to glory and praise on this man. When you hear preachers like me, like last Sunday, say things like, Lazarus died according to the will of God for the glory of God, and that piece of you that says, wait a minute, suffering, pain for the glory of God, that bristling that you feel when that statement comes out of the preacher's mouth, that's Judas. That's there. And lay that before the cross. He deserves that. Give Him your all. For He deserves nothing less. Amen. Let's stand to our feet for the prayer of confession. End of the service, we like to take a moment and use the truth of God's word to expose areas of our heart, the sins that are there, and to bring those before the Lord to lay them at His feet and ask Him to forgive us. So, would you pray with me the prayer of confession Heavenly Father, great, great, great are you, great is your faithfulness. You have been faithful to us, you are faithful to us, and we trust, Lord, you will be faithful in the future. From your word, we have heard you speak. Our names have been called out, our hearts revealed, and we thank you even for this. As we sing, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Lord, we have trusted in many things apart from you. Like the religious leaders, we have appreciated and loved our place, power, prestige, and respect more than we have loved you. For this, Lord, forgive us. Forgive us for when we have been greedy Like Judas, where we have justified our greed in comparing ourselves, not to your commands, not to your Son, but to the sins of others. Would you send the hot sun of your Word to melt our hearts like wax? will you give to us a greater glimpse into the wonders of your cross and the undeserved mercy we have been shown. And may our hearts respond in gratitude, celebrating the freedom of forgiveness. And may we spend that freedom serving you, serving you and serving your people giving ourselves lavishly as Mary gave herself lavishly to see your glory through the people of this church, through the ministries of this church, through our lives. Make us, Lord, to understand what Mary knew about Jesus. And may we, with your help, open our hearts and give to him an offering worthy of you. In Jesus' name we pray these things.